Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast where we work hard towards ascension, so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined today by Terry Robinson. This is another episode of Tomes of Magic, but before we get things kicked off for you, Terry, how you doing? I am doing entirely fine. You got to be part of my experiment where I tried to use my DSLR as a webcam so you could see my bald spot with amazing acuity until it stopped working because technology is hard. So now I'm back to my $30 Logitech that I think I got in like 1992 that is still kind of trucking along. It's like USB one. Every time I plug it in, it sparks a little bit. But uh, you know what? It's It's been in there. It's super weird to me that like some of the technology I use for the show I've now had for like 20 years. Like the mouse I use is like 15 years old. It's like technology is made to be disposable. I'm like, apparently not this Logitech. So mm, I'll take it. <laughs> and in addition to that, I would like to give a special thank you to two listeners who used our affiliate code to make purchases on drive-through RPG on materials of non-printed publications of $100 or more. And that is Yui and Richard Bat Brewster. Thank you so much for using our affiliate code. That helps us pay for the webpage and otherwise keep the lights on. If you buy something with our affiliate code and it goes above 100, send us a message and I'll give you a shout out. You can do that over email, made to the podcast at gmail.com or hit me up in our Discord server, discord.me slash made to the podcast. Thank you for the support. And that's all I have for notes. Last time we recorded, we were talking about Guide to the Technocracy, and one of the things that caught my attention was at several points in the book, they make mention to the uh, 90s television show X-Files, and then in the recommended reading again, they're like, you got to see X-Files, it's so, you know, so great. And so I thought, well, you know, I, when I was growing up, my friends were talking about it, I never did get a chance to see any of the episodes, and so I uh, rented uh, first four episodes and watched through them, and I was pleasantly surprised. It's, it's kind of hard for me to get into most TV shows, but... I think the script writers really brought their A game, at least in season one. I was really enjoying the four episodes that I saw. I want to see some more of that. But the thing that got me was when I was watching these episodes of X-Files and enjoying them, I was thinking, I, I have a really hard time thinking of this as a technocracy chronicle. I'm, I really kept thinking of the supplement for World of Darkness 2nd Edition called uh, Project Twilight, where you play mortal tier, you know, less powerful sleepers who are members of FBI, CIA, NSA, other kinds of, you know, Mossad whatever um secret organizations around the world usually connected to a, a government or official authority i think that fit a lot better for x files because again and again uh, fox and Mulder, the two fbi agents that the show is about they keep probing into supernatural mysteries and as soon as they're facing three guys with billy clubs or three guys with pistols they just like throw up their hands like well out of my depth i retreat it's like, okay, these people have no backup. They don't have much influence. They don't have much firepower. It's like as soon as things get a little bit hot, they basically turn around and go home, which is understandable. You know, if three guys with guns were standing in front of me, I'd go home. But, yeah. <laughs> but the point is, but the point is, you know, technocrats have more resources to draw from. And so I, I think when they were referring to it in Guide to the Technocracy, it was more of that kind of that structure of the show. We, we have these characters in the show who belong to a federal agency. And because of that, there are certain things they must do, certain rules they must follow. But there are also certain resources at their fingertips. For example, Fox and Mulder, whenever they want to travel anywhere in the U.S., they just say, I'm going to fly to Oregon. It's like, OK, we're buying your ticket. You don't pay for it and you're going tomorrow. It's like they could stop on a dime next day, fly anywhere they wanted. And so I, I think that's what they were getting at. But anyways, uh, yeah, those of you who want to dig through some old 90s television, uh, X-Files is certainly worth a watch. And I think there is some World of Darkness material in there for us to enjoy. I would love 
a show that was done kind of in the world of darkness, but it was self-aware. Like, so you bring up the thing like three three hoodlums with, with guns pop up and they run. I just picture someone going, ah, guns, we can't soak that. And then like people running into the distance. <laughs> I, I, would really, would be pretty I would appreciate that level of self-awareness. <laughs> that's that's, that's some, not going to be kind of funny. Yeah, somebody like crashes through a window and, go, and just yells, dexterity plus athletics. <laughs> like... <laughs> Okay, well, uh, today in Tomes of Magic, we are going to look back at the good old days. I mean, Terry, just an example. <laughs> you remember when you were a new podcaster? I mean, you were just starting out, that oh, fresh energy, terrifying. that awkwardness. Oh, God. I mean, you can recapture those moments in Mage with Initiates of the Art. This is a book that came out at the tail end of second edition where you play apprentices. And apprentices is, I'm not sure if they're using the term in a standard sense or as a, a game term, but uh, it means a mage who has just awakened but has not yet learned very much at all about magic or about mage society or about the supernatural world in which they now find themselves. And so apprentices are supposed to be the new kids on the block, the ones who just don't know which end is up. And because of that, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of new discoveries to make, but also a lot of dangers, at least from what I hear. There's some kind of threat or something. Maybe that's why they call it World of Darkness. But uh, this book has a 26 on the spine. It came out in 1999. It is one of the shorter books at 87 pages. And uh, this was written by Lynn Davis and Lindsay Woodcock. And uh, development was by Jesse Heinig. I thought it was interesting to note that this is the first book that did not have involvement from Sotero's Bricado. And in fact, they call attention to that on the credits page. Usually in the special thanks bar, they mention a whole bunch of different people that they know with inside jokes and they're people that I don't know and I don't understand the inside jokes and I think it's just sort of a, a minor privilege that they give to authors. They can do call shout outs to their friends and family. This time, the special thanks is to only one person and that is Sinceros Brocato, who at the time was being referred to as Phil, Porthos, Fitz, Empress, etc., 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 Brocato, which is, is quite a title if you can uh, land one of those. Uh, you've, you've certainly done something in the RPG world. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, at any rate, this book puts the rules and the suggestions firmly in your hand to play an apprentice mage, someone who has just awakened. They don't have their bearings yet. There's a lot they don't know. And they've got a lot of material to study in most cases. Orphans, uh, I guess, are a little bit different. But uh, I thought it might be a good uh, time to start off a walk through the book just so we can get familiar with what is in each of those chapters. Walk through! This is interesting because the book opens with a piece of prelude fiction. And as opposed to extending the tale of Amanda Jensen, it does kind of a flashback. So it starts with a little aside from Kathleen Ryan saying, hey, there was a book I was working on that was going to outline this called the Cerberus or Kerberus Chronicle. And this is a section from chapter two. It fits chronologically between Book of Shadows and Book of Madness, and I thought it was a delightful little flashback. We get Amanda on Kerberos getting a lesson, and you see how that character is interacting with the other apprentices, the view amongst the pool of apprentices, like who likes who, who gets along with whose tutor, and then there's a side comment where one of the characters more or less goes, why are you treating her special? And the reply is, well, because she is special. And the person's like, well, why did you send her on the special mi mission? Why are you giving giving her this reward? And Mitzi is like, it's not a reward. She was the most disposable. And you're like, oh, dip. 
<laughs> that, that, that got intense all of a sudden. <laughs> the thing I liked about it was one of the things that I've enjoyed about the Amanda Jensen saga is the little snippets of training. In tradition book Euthanatos, we get a little section where they are playing backgammon and they break it up into three games. In the first, your goal is to cheat as much as possible. In the second, the, the tutor is going to try and notice your use of magic. And in the third, they'll fight you for it. And here it's the same thing where the tutor, Mitzi, just pulls out a beautiful hourglass, shoves it on the table and says, your goal is to make this stop and then flips over the hourglass that's like, go. And I'm like, yes. I very much enjoyed this little piece of opening fiction. Unlike, say, Tales of Magic Dark Adventure, where it's like, she was a boiling sex pot and she was ready to explode and everyone's head turned as she walked by. Also, she could fire 11 guns at once. This is like, oh no, I like this. And in both cases, the fiction fit the tone for the tone for the book to me. So I like intro. The opening to Initiates of the Art is a introduction and we get the recurring story of a character who is kind of at a crossroads in their life and is trying to figure out what they want to do next, uh, as well as the story of a character by the name of Leanne, who is reminiscing or thinking back of her experience as an apprentice. The book starts out with the statement of, the mood is the unexplored world, that to an initiate, everything is brand new once more. And one of the nice things about running an apprentice chronicle is, you get to try and look at the world of darkness through the lens of the new character. And that is one of the neat things that you can get out of an apprentice chronicle. The other one is the idea of the theme being the journey to discovery, that it is perilous to go from sleeper to fully active mage, that there are threats and to make it more complicated, there are threats you don't even know about. In addition to that, it is kind of a, a setup for your life as an awakened mage in that your life as an awakened mage will contain constant trials and adversaries and so on. But when you're an initiate or when you're an apprentice, those things are there, but they're slightly more formalized and there may be slightly more people there to help you along or to hinder you depending on, on how the case may be. So it does an interesting thing of saying apprenticeship allows you to look at the world fresh and it can be considered a microcosm for the entire experience of mage as a whole. Moving on to chapter one, this starts with a character by the name of Kyle who is staring down at a body of water and thinking, do I jump? When Leanne, Kyle's eventual mentor or initial mentor, uh, intercedes. And this chapter uh, describes kind of the moment of awareness, the illumination that occurs during awakening. And I find it interesting in that I think in Mage there are a couple different dissonant representations of what that moment of awakening is. For instance, when we were talking about Orphan Survival Guide, the moment of awakening is very dangerous because it is not a moment of clarity. It is a moment of confusion. You're getting a whole bunch more new information and you have no idea what to do with it. Where other books present awakening as suddenly everything makes sense. And this, this book kind of moves back and forth between those two, but a little bit more on the everything suddenly makes sense side, and you need to make sense of everything suddenly making sense. This chapter is broken into, and many of the chapters are broken into subchapters, which again, flash back and forth between uh, descriptive omniscient text that is given directly to the reader from some sort of semi-omniscient in-world character to the adventures of Kyle and Leanne as uh, Kyle tries to 
piece together what's happening. It kind of asks the question of, okay, so this has happened. Where do we go from here? And what are the first steps that you will make when looking at the awakened world? I think one of the interesting things the book does is, in general, it dials in advice that had been previously given. Like one of the notions is that mages tend to be lousy with supernatural connections. And then other books are like, hey, not everyone should be a revenant kinfolk orphan or something like that, just jamming as much supernatural into one one section as humanly possible. And this says, no, a little bit's kind of good. So I, I, I very much like this because it, and it dialed in a lot of things. It gives some basic information on what the first stirrings of the avatar is going to be like. One of the things it brings up is the idea that someone may have a, a fitful avatar, but it presents the idea that maybe sorcerers do have avatars that are doing magic. It's just not there all the time. The final thing is it gives some advice to the storyteller on what are some plot ideas, and it keenly focuses on awakenings generally don't happen by accident. An awakening is going to inform the magic a character does, and there should be something significant about that awakening that kind of says something about the character. Someone who slowly realizes they're awake because they've spent life in a monastic order, that gives you a lot of information about the character. Someone who awakens during a, a hail of gunfire, we're learning something about the character because of that. The idea of awakening, an awakening that you don't notice, and then slowly, gradually after that, things come into focus. That was a new idea for Mage. I have not seen anything even like that in any previous Mage books. There's two brief quotes about awakening. It can happen to anyone, anytime, and it is invariably unique to the individual. Also, more often, the awakening comes as a response to some soul-wrenching trauma or revelation. For some time, I've been saying, yeah, awakenings were portrayed rather differently under Brucato's view of mage than it was under Stuart Wick's view of mage. And this, like, you know, spells it out very clearly. Page 16 was hard for me because it talks about, quote, the accumulated wisdom of past lives. And this is a, a, on page 16 of chapter one. It's saying uh, reincarnation is real. It's all, all mages know it. And look, here's proof. And it's like, whoa, I feel like I'm back in the first edition core book. And then in later books, especially in second edition, they made it more in what I thought was a lot more interesting. It's like some mages believe in reincarnation. Some mages don't. Some mages say either or. And and so there's disagreement and discussion about this. And then here we get to page 16. It's like, no, no, it, it's all reincarnation. So that, that threw me. To me, I don't think anyone in mage questions whether the avatar comes back. The Avatar very obviously seems to be recycled, and most people seem to kind of agree on that. There seems to be more unity on that. Whether the soul or some aspect of the self besides the Avatar comes back, to me, that is still very much in the air. One of the things I like about this book is it goes a little bit towards making the avatar something strange and external, as opposed to just another voice in your head that's part of you that you're externalizing to make sense of the world. So I, I was fine with that past lives mention, uh, it, because later it maintains that ambiguity. And also it, it specifically points out that the soul and the avatar are not the same thing. And, and to me, the reincarnation is when the soul and the avatar move together versus just the avatar. And it's one of those things where it's a voice inside of your head, it's there, you kind of personalize it. And I think a lot of mages may mistake that possibly for the soul. 
and I feel though that the uh, most of the books until M twenty maintain mystery about the exact relationship between the two. Well, yeah. it wasn't the impression I got okay. when, I, when I was reading through that page, but there was another quote where Leanne is saying to Kyle, "Look, uh, you know, look, look at this, look at this. I mean, if you don't doubt me, here's proof." It's yeah. just like like a heavy handed argument for reincarnation. So that. Also, chapter one had a, a number of interesting points to it, but a lot of it was was so vague that I really felt like it would have been better if they had three or four fiction examples of different awakenings. I, I think that would have served their goal a lot better in chapter one. I like the idea of uh, what I call headhunters, and when I say headhunters, I'm, I'm talking about like you know corporate headhunters these days, people who recruit new employees or potential employees for a company. Uh, Leanne in the fiction basically says that she's, uh, although she doesn't use that word, she says she's a headhunter. She goes looking for people who are about to awaken, who have just awakened, and then she hooks them up with uh, mentors who will take them the rest of the way. And I, I really like that idea. That's kind of a concept I've always had in my portrayal of the world of mage. However, it does assume a more cohesive set of mage factions, especially the traditions in, in the Council of Nine. So not everybody likes that strong, cohesive view of the traditions. In Orphan Survival Guide, we get this sense that uh, new mages, especially in cities, when they awaken, either nobody finds them or they're going to uh, hook up with orphans more likely than, than other people. And this book gives us the idea that if a person awakens, uh, they will either be approached by a member of any mage faction or if they go out in their city looking for um, other mages, there's a good chance they'll find a tradition mage or a convention mage of, of the technocracy. And... This I don't really see as a discrepancy between Orphan Survival Guide and Initiates of the Art because in Initiates of the Art we are pushing right up against the edge of Revised Edition and in Revised Edition there's been a big change in the setting of Mage and so there's much less travel to Horizon Chantries, there are much more um, uh, tradition mages on Earth trying to connect with other tradition mages on Earth. So it makes sense. I don't see this as a discrepancy, but it was interesting to note the difference that you get when when you have a strong second edition focus and you have a stronger revised edition focus. But one of the considerations I try and make whenever I read a book is when a system is introduced, I try and say to myself, what would it be like if everyone in the world of darkness used this system or everyone in mage used the system? So when a player comes up with a rote where it's like, well, with correspondence one, mine two, forces two, I should be able to make someone's head explode. I'm like, okay, that's fine that you think that. If every mage with those spheres can do that, what is mage going to look like if we all have the ability to make other people's head explode at a distance? And then you wind up with a game that doesn't look like mage at all to me. And one of the dissonances I always had was the thing that you brought up of hey, if mages are rare, how the heck do they find each other? And one idea is, oh, your avatar flares during awakening and you can use magic to find it. And then I immediately go, well, wait a minute. The technocracy has Maynar. They literally have orbiting space satellites that look for magic. That's going to basically allow them to be like, uh, okay, we have an awakening in sector 7G, uh, agents blue, <laughs> agent green. Do you want to go investigate that? And the traditions wouldn't stand a chance. So one of the things they mention here is awakenings have signs, but they aren't necessarily magic signs. There are changes in behavior that if you're keeping tabs on a group of people of which you think one may awaken, you can kind of be like, I think Timmy or Becky is is going through some stuff. And I like that. And I also like the notion that they mentioned that after awakening, your avatar drives you to act 
And it is very hard to resist that. And I liked that. It gave kind of an impetus to play the darn game. Like, why are mages disproportionately likely to go out and kick ass and be adventurers and so on? And I I thought it addressed that well. Chapter two kind of focuses on the mentor experience. And this is done through uh, epistolary entries. And then it talks about the student-mentor relationship and that students are going to have to deal with kooky people that know a lot of things and that masters are going to be constantly poking at you to make sure that you are ready once you are out on your own. And I think my favorite portion of this section is on page 30, where it is a very supportive letter from one chorister to another saying what to do during an initiation, like during the, the right that is going to be done. And it has little things like what to do if you forget your words. And it's like, look to your mentor. That's what they're there for. What if I sneeze? And it's like, think about other things. And I could see someone being like, why are you telling me what, what I should do if I sneeze during my initiation? I took this as an attempt to very much humanize that process. That way, if a storyteller and a player want to do a scene on what their initiation was like, that they would kind of have a a way of doing that with the appropriate amount of, of pomp and circumstance. It goes through what initiation is like in each of the traditions. Um, and, and initiation here is when you go from apprentice to formal member of some sort. There's references for seekings, how they go. And then finally, there is what was my favorite system. On page 41, there is a little aside called whoops. And the idea is that every time a apprentice does a magical effect for the first time, they make a willpower roll. And if they succeed, everything goes as normal. And my first thought was, oh man, here's another system that is just going to pointlessly punish players. But instead of them failing the willpower roll and the effect not working, it works, but it is quirky. Maybe the instead of shooting out a beam of fire, you shoot out a beam of ice uh, towards your target or something like that, or the range is off, or the spell winds up lasting way longer than you want it to. But I, I like that idea as a rule that you can still have success, uh, you can still have an effect more or less succeed and not quite go as you planned. There was some real uh, nice nuggets here to, to think on, but there's two pages for the chorister initiation pamphlet that you mentioned. I didn't like it basically for two reasons. One, um, I thought it was obvious stuff. I, f- I felt like it was a waste of time reading those two pages. But but second, it, not every initiation ceremony is going to be the same. Not every group of instructors and chantry leaders are going to be the same sort of people. And so it, it's like, kind of like misleading. It's like you might have fallen in with a really strict bunch and you can have some good role playing there. You might have fallen in with a really you know understanding nice bunch and there was a mention about how apprentices who aren't careful uh, say the wrong things to the wrong people, and they might get thrown into a psychiatric ward. And I don't think that was hyperbole. I could really see that as something that could happen. And then, but also my thinking was following, you know, I'll bet the technocratic union has some successes pulling recently awakened people out of psychiatric wards, because with their you know official organizational connections, they would have an easier time pulling people successfully out of the psychiatric ward without you know breaking any rules. And also, when you pull someone who's not crazy out of a psychiatric ward and says, I rescued you, they're like, oh, I am so thankful, I am so grateful, and they're much more willing to hear what you have to say. And so I'll bet the technocrats get some successful recruits there. Just the educational, there's a section called educational structures. This was the first indication that I can remember in a mage book that um, where 
it suggests that your avatar might not be on your side, might not be friendly, might not be helpful to you, which is is interesting. But it's the first time that I remember seeing that in a published mage book up to this point. Uh, before this point, it was always trust your avatar. You can rely on your avatar. It has your best interests in heart. In fact, there's passages you know suggesting that new mages should uh, let go of their misgivings and just trust their avatar. And here we have a section saying, you know, again, trust your avatar, which we have seen in the past. Then we have a different in-character bit written by another mage saying, yeah, you, you maybe you shouldn't trust your avatar. Maybe it's some weird thing that is uh, going to suggest something that's not helpful to you. We see more of this kind of thinking in revised edition. Just interesting for me to see it for the first time in a mage book. This chapter two took a section to talk about essences and awakening in general. And uh, some of that material was very thought provoking. And some of it was um, a bit odd for me. For example, it says that uh, the dynamic essence in mages, people are saying that there's a chance of it leading to marauderdom. It's like dynamic essence mages are at a higher risk of becoming marauders than mages who have different essences. This is the first time this is mentioned in a mage book. And if you want to do that in your chronicle, that's fine. I'm not saying it's wrong or bad. It's just interesting to see this this change in the way that essences are presented to mage readers. And it goes from there to build on this idea that in the past, dynamic essence was very common among mages, especially tradition mages, and the questing essence was more uncommon. And here it's saying, no, questing essence is quite common, which makes sense since you just told us that dynamic essence puts people at risk. And so now I can see that. But but these two ideas are, are new here, and they are different from what has been said before in mage books. I am never quite sure how to treat when they talk about the association between factions and essences. Like, it's it's pretty straightforward. You have four essence types, and that kind of can map, if you want, to the four factions of the Ascension War. And one of the things is, like, hey, if the traditions are more common and they're more likely to be questing, then we need more questing avatars. So there's this weird bit where you need the, the the commonality to match with the factions if the factions are reflections of it and so on. So it is one of those ones where like, this is a question that I think Mage has historically had difficulty with. And here's a new answer to the question that still doesn't quite sit perfectly well with me. <laughs> it kind of feels like, like the the weird asides that we got like in the, uh, in the Book of Mirrors where someone's like, let me give you the straight dope about this. And you're like, that is mentioned nowhere else. It, you have no confirming information. It's a fascinating idea, but it doesn't necessarily fit with anything. And like, I, f- I feel like we should have a, a term for those. Like we call those mage bits, just the, the parts of the setting or something. You're like, that doesn't quite yeah. add up. It was an interesting idea at the beginning of Mage in mm-hmm. 1993, where it says each of the main four mage factions, which is Council of Nine Mystic Traditions, Technocratic Union, Marauders Nefandi, each of those four main factions represents one of the four essences of mage. It was an interesting idea, but never really carried off that well. For example, it said Nefandi represent the primordial essence. It's like, oh, primordial is evil. Well, no, actually, it's not evil. You could see it as evil, but you could equally well see it as something very good. And so that was just one of the problems there. Another problem was it said that the Council of Nine Mystic Traditions represented the questing essence, yet most tradition mages have the Mm -hmm. dynamic essence. It's like, okay, yeah, no problem here, a little weird. They sort of dropped that. And although it was a neat idea, I I totally understand dropping Mm -hmm. it. I have no problem with dropping it because its application was very open to interpretation and I can see how people would see flaws with it. 
I feel like whenever someone writes for the line, they invariably pick up the 1E core rulebook and read through it. And every few books, we get this like throwback to an idea that was presented there and was kind of cool and kind of nuts, but never discussed again. But sometimes when you get a new writer or something, like uh, suddenly we get like a flashback to. Yeah, to actually, that, yeah. that clarifies my point on chapter one because I, I didn't put it very well, but the very beginning of Mage there were certain things that all mages knew and everybody mm -hmm. agreed on. For example, that uh, avatars are like this or reincarnation is like this. And that was the thing I liked about uh, Bricado's tenure. He said, look, um, mages disagree about reincarnation. They disagree about what is an avatar and where does it come from. And, and I liked that murkiness, that you know, open to discussion. And then in chapter one, it's like, uh, no, avatars are like this and, and here's proof. And I like it when mages don't all know it and they disagree about it. The other thing to me that this book does is it ramps up something that I always associated with Revised, that there are a lot more sorcerers than mages, and there's a pretty good chance that they will be mixed together. It makes mention of the fact that, as I said earlier, that uh, one interpretation of sorcerers is they do have true avatars, they just don't have the ability to be in avatar mode all the time, which is why their magic is uh, fitful and somewhat limited. And the idea of having a school setting as opposed to intense one-on-one -on -one mentorship, if you have five times as many sorcerers as you do true mages, then it suddenly makes sense that if true mages generally are the instructors, that you're going to have to have a higher ratio of apprentices to mentors. If you're dealing with people who aren't necessarily awakened, then you may want to keep it on Earth. And also keeping it on Earth allows you to maintain a connection to your family and so on. So it's one of those things where like it is a sudden change and they retool it. And I think they do a reasonably good job of explaining it. But yeah, it is a sudden departure from like, you're a wizard, Harry. And suddenly like you go off to Mage Hogwarts and it is presented without explanation. Mind you, the author doesn't necessarily owe us one and I would never want a mage author to be in the position of having to go I changed something here's what it used to be here's what it is now here's why because then they would have to be able to canonically say what it used to be and that answer isn't always straightforward so I get that but but to me that brought up an idea that hey we are going to make sorcery much more common we're going to make the barrier between sorcery and true magic less obvious in world, even though as players were like, hey, is that guy got a retay? No. Okay. Sorcerer. Uh, chapter three is life as an apprentice and talks about the process of going through an apprenticeship. And this to me is a chapter full of interesting tidbits. And I don't want to say it's advice so much as it's reminders that if you want to do an apprenticeship chronicle or an apprenticeship set of games here are kind of the beats you should likely hit as part of that. Like one of the questions is going to be, okay, you've awakened. What happens to your existing social connections? And the impression I got in all previous editions is maybe with the exception of some very close members of your family that again, you were whisked off, whisked off to like Hogwarts or what have you. And you, uh, you started your life as a mage and you abandoned a lot of your previous life. It also talks about how the apprenticeship process varies by age. Uh, the game kind of works with the default assumption that you were a late teenager or possibly someone in your early 20s, but the game says, oh, by the way, if we're going to say that anyone at any time 
can awaken, we need to deal with what happens when someone who's in their 50s awakens or what happens who someone who is 10 awakens or what if someone comes into the world awakens and the book walks through these are some of the considerations you need to make. I also like the section where it's like, how do you train a kid? You don't. You just let them watch and you hope that they pick up stuff and they don't burn the house down. I'm like, okay, that's <laughs> that's that's pretty straightforward advice on a child mage. It also discusses kind of the pits and perils of what training is going to be. And one of the things I find interesting was it talks about how that the traditions are relatively hidebound, that during their education, they focus heavily on history and then practically say history isn't going to help a mage actually do magic in most cases. It's really going to be how good are you at at polishing your focusing stones and how good how, how sharp is your sacrificial knife and so on. So they talk about, hey, a lot of your initiation or a lot of your apprenticeship is going to be mastery of tools. It talks about how they need to gain the ability to be absolutely undistractable, to do incredibly monotonous things to get their magic to work. It talks about how that may differ for an orphan, what their training is going to be like. And it kind of answered one of my questions that I had in previous things, how are tradition mages and non-tradition mages going to progress at roughly the same rate? And it more or less says, well, if you're working with a tradition, you're spending a lot of time just keeping the chantry up and running. You're spending a lot of time dealing with incredibly doctrinaire people who have one particular way of doing things and think you need to do it the same way, where an orphan may not have access to the same resources, but they are in a better position to quickly differentiate what works from what doesn't. And I like the fact that it kind of gave two different routes to the same point where each person could look at the other person's way of doing things and obviously say, I think mine is better. Uh, It gives recommendations on how to deal with paradox, how to maintain your social ties or not and the effects of it. And then the final part is a, a pretty straightforward section that says, here are the challenges that you will face on the everyday side, such as drugs, pedantry over enthusiasm and laziness, which is a weird collection of terms to like indicate like what the four horsemen of the apprenticeship apocalypse could wind up looking like. And then finally, the the magic temptations of once you are awakened, you may be inclined to stretch yourself too far or to go for uh, a personal pursuit of power or to sell out or to be reckless or to help other people too much because you have a special oomph. I very much liked those sections. They are things that, again, a lot of this may come across as obvious, but I took it as a storyteller of, if you're going to do this type of chronicle, you need to be able to address these questions. Page 46 talks about rebel against the system that that misled them. And again, this is a reference to the idea that the the traditions are are harsh and reactionary and not friendly to younger, newer members who have their own ideas. And this was something that was emphasized in revised edition, but in the first two editions of Mage, it was not actually the case. Uh, in fact, there's a, a framing narrative for this book, which is not adhered to very well. Um, In the beginning of the book, we get this idea that there's a mage who is going to write a book to teach apprentices how to get through their apprenticeship successfully. And there's like a fiction section where that mage collects his, I think, cabal mates or just mages that he knows. And he says, look, here's my book. Why don't you take a look at it? What do you think? And they look through and they say, yeah, why don't we, this, this looks pretty good. Why don't we distribute this to apprentices? However, you properly do that. And that framing narrative it, it says at another point in the book that uh, the Council of Nine Mystic Traditions is going to frown on this. They don't want this kind of book getting into the hands of potential apprentices. And I was thinking, like, why? It's like, oh, yeah, it's a revised edition. The, tra- the traditional leadership is harsh and reactionary. And they weren't in the first two editions. Mm-hmm. So there was a mention about how 
mentors are training their apprentices with the foci of their faction. And that strongly reinforces this notion that the apprentice is going to have um, an over-reliance on foci in their future. I actually have a problem with that because wouldn't the mentor demonstrate some magic without a focus to show it? It's like, well, this is how I do it. Or when you're older, it'll be like this. I mean, it just seems like a natural part of mage society. Oh, sorry. The way I interpreted that section, because I had the same thought, is it kind of presents that early on a mage will try and do an effect without doing anything and will just try and manifest an effect and it'll be super hard. And then their mentor will be will say, hey, if you focus on this bell or if you guide your thoughts using this geometric pattern, it gets way easier. And then the character does it and is like, oh, wow, that, that, that works super well. And that once you have it the easy way, it is hard to get rid of that crutch up the other end. That was how I interpreted that. Yeah, I can see yeah. that. But at the same time, I have this thought that living with the mentor, when the mentor wants to do something for him or herself, they'll just be like, won't even snap the finger. It'll just be, just be like, it appears in front of him. It's like, okay, and he dips his pen in the... In the, in the it, bottle of ink that wasn't there before and you know it's like the apprentice is going to go oh yeah you know the way i do it and the mm-hmm. way he does it different so um, on page 48 the terms orphan and disparate were used like interchangeably and that kind of threw me it's like well I, wait a minute we, yeah, we have a little messy. Of, we've we've made these game terms and we have differentiated their meaning and so it w- would be nice for an editor to come along and say hey what about uh, page 48 i really like that distinction between the way that most orphans teach their apprentices and the way that most established mages teach their apprentices. I, I really like that. The deductive versus the inductive. It's like the orphans are like, you know, look, this works. So that probably means that this is true in the world we live in. And then the uh, established mages are going to say, this is the world we live in and we can see it by this working and this not working. And it actually, you know, gave a, a section to flesh that out. And I really enjoyed that. I thought this mm-hmm. is so good and it's going to be so helpful for, for storytellers portraying the world of mage to their players. Loved that. I had a complaint with the section on uh, paradigm. It, it was saying that some instructors have um, an apprentice who doesn't know anything about magic or thinks they know nothing about magic. They're a blank slate. It's easy to teach them a new paradigm. Other apprentices have some thoughts about what magic is like. And so the teacher has to either work against that paradigm or like push it down and replace it. And I was thinking, hold on, we have not mentioned something that really ought to be mentioned here. And that is most people start out as regular sleepers in sleeper society, which means the modern scientific paradigm that the technocracy is actively pushing, according to mage books, is going to be their paradigm. And that's going to say you can't throw fireballs. And so the mentor has to work against that. And so I thought that was worth mentioning. I can't make it a big complaint. It doesn't mean it's a bad chapter or anything. It's just, it would have been nice to emphasize that. There is a a sidebar called the P word. And in the sidebar, it's saying, hey, look, paradigm is a difficult, they basically say paradigm is a difficult thing to talk about. You're telling us paradigm is hard to talk about. Yeah, we agree. However, why is that? Oh, maybe it's because it was never well-defined in a mage book before this point. But um, this sidebar was a little difficult for me because in the past, I've thought of uh, paradigm is a word in the dictionary, a you know, regular word in the English language. And then we also have this game term, 
paradigm, which is not capitalized. It adds a little confusion there. And the game term paradigm is has to do with magic and, and not other things. And this sidebar actually seems to confuse the dictionary word and the game term for me. So after reading the sidebar, I was like, I'm glad you tried to clarify things for me, but that doesn't clarify that much for me. That felt like a, again, a thing that changes in revised is the notion that paradigm is something you can transcend, that eventually you hit the point where you see magic as being a unified thing that comes fundamentally from the practitioner. And the thing I felt like it was setting up was the 20th anniversary notion that a paradigm is something you can never transform. Eventually you can drop all of your tools, but even at the end of the day, a chorister is going to believe that their magic comes from the empowerment created by the shard of the one or something like that, where this is kind of suggesting that there is this state beyond paradigms that you can reach to. That was something where looking ahead, I think that's what they were going for here. But if this had just been the next book in sequence to come out, I, I think I would have been, I, I feel I would have been much more confused because the feeling I had in, in second edition going on so far is like, you have to have a paradigm. Like, even if you choose not to have a paradigm, okay, that's your paradigm now. But it's just funny. It's like, yeah, paradigm's hard to talk about. Yeah, what is that? And here, we'll, we'll give you a little bit of information on it. It's like, yeah, it doesn't help that much. And then at the end, it, it's a short sidebar. In, as, but moving on, um, there was this, another sidebar on recognizing resonance, and it gave some simple you know, rule systems for how to deal with recognizing someone by resonance. I thought that was great. I, I really liked that. I think they intended it as optional. I think it's nice. There's two sidebars on how to stay awake late at night and there's another sidebar about how roommates can be noisy and annoying like uh, so these three sidebars actually take up a, a good amount of space on the pages and i was like yeah if you could have dropped those i would have been fine with that just saying we have this idea that uh it's hard to handle personal relationships um but it is vital that you do that and this this was something new in all of the previously published mage books this this is a new thing now it connects well to the concepts that they're working with in revised edition so i understand why it's here i'm not complaining but i am pointing out that this is a very new thing previous editions of mage um you're because you are a fundamentally different being now you are a mage you're on the other side of the mystic veil and so you're going to lose some old friendships and make some new friendships and carry on with your life. That's okay. I, I get that, and that's fine. But here it's saying you, you've got to keep your previous life relationships or you're going to have a really hard time. It's like, okay, I can see how someone could run with that, but this is a new idea, and it's not necessarily the only way of looking at things. And another, another point I just want to throw in is we have a background in Mage, all editions of Mage, called Arcane. And I always saw that as affecting sleepers and enemies more than friendly mages. But pushing that aside for a moment, if you want to maintain your previous uh, sleeper life kind of relationships and you have one to five in Arcane, that's going to become very difficult. Arcane starts working after Awakening. And they, they kind of forget to mention that. It's like, look, if you awaken and you've got an Arcane of three or four, you're going to have a really hard time connecting with your friends, cousins, parents, employers, etc. And so I think that's worth mentioning here. I, I feel that the arcane background certainly complicates that. The, the feeling I always got from arcane is that 
in first edition, when it's introduced, there is the idea that there is this global war for ascension and the technocrats are everywhere and there is no way to protect yourself unless you constantly have warding effects and so on, which is why like you look at the book of chantries and everyone seemingly has like three to five dots of arcane. It's just a whole bunch of people running around forgetting who the other people are while trying to like plot against them at Doizatep or something like that. And this is one of those things where they're like, hey, we've de-emphasized the idea that the technocracy is omnipresent until we get to actual revised in which the technocracy is omnipresent. But the idea that like there is a global satellite that is just detecting when mages awaken and oh man, you need this thing to, to keep you hidden. I put that more on, on arcane needing a little bit of a revision than anything yeah. else. And now it creates that weird scenario of being like, oh, okay, you awaken, you suddenly have five dots of arcane. Do your parents forget who you are? Like I... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like Terry and I have said before, uh, before we started doing this podcast, we thought we knew mage and then we get into the details and it's like, yeah, people say mage is hard to understand. They're right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are some... There are... I feel as if the opening from chapter one was like a shot across the bow of that old style of mage where it says mages don't stop being human. And in first edition, I interpreted that as mage still have wants and desires. And in revised, or in this book, at least, I took that as mage still have friends and crushes and chores and a day job. So mages are still human. That is two different interpretations of that. But but yeah, it certainly is. it's like... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, and, and it's well put. It's like, what does it mean to be a human and a mystical being at the same time? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you look at early first edition, you look at revised edition. We have different answers, mm-hmm. and you can run with one you like. So chapter four is resolution. And this is, to me, a storyteller chapter that talks about yet more perils, which is, but kind of focuses on the idea of what kind of stories can you build? And again, this is presented as bits of David Grayson's guide on how to die, which is a beautiful chapter title. And there's a little line before it that I kind of like that says, despite the fact that I find David Grayson lamentable, he has good advice. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. I think that summarizes a lot of mage interactions. Like, this guy's an asshole and I wish he were dead, but he has a point. (laughs) So (laughs) it goes on to talk about like all of the dumb things that can do you in. Guns will usually kill you pretty final. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, and it's just kind of a reminder, again, like this is kind of the apex of the yes, I knew this, but it is kind of a polite reminder that if you're doing a high action, high adventure thing, like mages are very squishy. This book told you a lot of obvious things, but it did that because I feel like the authors were saying that there was a lot of role playing opportunity that people were abandoning in favor of high supernatural campaigns where people are only interacting with other mages and having curdemain to figure out who has to pay for the check and you're always up against vampires and so on but this is like yeah you're an initiate you know who a good antagonist is for your initiate a guy with a knife oh okay yeah that does kind of make sense i'm like he's got two more dots and strength and dexterity than you i don't care if you have access to low level sphere magic there's still a pretty good chance you're going to wind up in the emergency room. And then it goes on to to death by magic and it talks about magical disasters are not an uncom- are not the most common demise for apprentices. Most initiates don't have the magical clout to summon up a truly dangerous manifestation, which is an interesting oh by the way and has the final line when a mentor says don't touch pay attention. And I I thought this book had a lot of very snappy writing in it that I very much appreciated. It goes into wild animal attacks and how mages tend to spook animals. And I'm like, this is an interesting aside. It talks about like some of the, uh, the, 
problems you can deal with, like the possibility of becoming a marauder or the possibility of becoming a Nefondus and what that downward spiral looks like. Finally, we get two sections on a in-world discussion of other threats. The section is entitled Boogeyman. It is a character talking, I felt like, about the traditions and the technocracy and talking from an outsider view, how that character views the indoctrination process of those other factions in the Ascension War. But that one of the things that I thought was interesting was, this is a theme that I wish Mage banged on a little bit more about. There are non-enlightened actors that are not supernatural that may see a mage and see opportunity in that. My favorite example would be somebody does a deal with a organized crime group that goes bad, they get in prison, they bust out using magic, and then the, the leader of the crime group goes, that was a pretty neat trick you had. Here's a list of people that you're going to do that for, and if you don't, I'm going to kill your family. And you're like, okay, suddenly we have a mage that is very much in hawk to mortal forces. And this section kind of suggested that, that those kind of interactions could occur. Then we get some advice on some storytelling things that you can do, the importance of the atmosphere of it being a wild, crazy world with things that are hidden and things that only slowly reveal themselves, a, a bunch of story ideas, a few pieces of advice, and then that kind of draws us down to the end of chapter four. To me, the, the best part here was just kind of the reminder of these are the types of stories that you can have, that with an early on character, becoming an Afondus is likely not going to be an immediate plot or that going marauder really makes no sense but it gave a bunch of interesting ways where that could happen where a player and a storyteller could kind of agree ahead of time this is the arc i want this character to go on how do we do that i thought that look in of saying these are people that want to enslave you to their power structure and their worldview was was very neat if slightly long there was the assumption there that quiet uh, a mage experiencing quiet uh, leads to becoming a marauder, which is something that you'll see in a few other mage books. You also see things that disagree with it. It's it's not necessarily true. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I think as as a mage storyteller who's looking at running a longer chronicle, I think um, the relationship between marauderdom and quiet, I think, is something that a mage needs to kind of establish and understand. Does one lead to the other? Are they two different things? How does that work? Because uh, there's no solid uh, canon answer for that. But uh, it was interesting to see that they go with that assumption for this chapter. I liked this idea of being intimately familiar with level one sphere effects. Because uh, they have an arete of one and no higher, which we'll refer to in the appendix, they get very familiar with level one sphere effects before they get up to two and three. And I really liked that. I think it gives both players and storytellers a more firm foundation to build on for future character development and future scenes. So I really liked that. I thought it was very helpful for new storytellers. This idea that, my, I have my own idea here, which is not in any of the Mage books, but that the um, awareness talent on the character sheet, I think it's in every edition of Mage, and that is, it is not a background, it is not a talisman, it is not a sphere effect, it is just like a natural skill that mages can have if you put some dots in it and that is uh, your spider sense is tingling like something supernatural around here i can detect that because i'm a mage and sleepers cannot sleepers cannot learn the awareness skill except for a few special exceptions but um, i like the idea of training the awareness skill I, I like the idea of a storyteller working with the players to the first time you're near i don't know a werewolf the storyteller does not say hey it's a werewolf the storyteller says there's something magical about that guy 
And so the player, you know, is naturally going to assume, oh, it's another mage, or it might be a sorcerer, or, you know, if they even know about that. When they have an experience and they find out, oh, this one's a werewolf, then the next time they get near something, their awareness skill will be, it's like, okay, you got, you know, two successes or something. You are near aware creature. It's like you've trained your awareness skill so that an apprentice, every every time they come near something strange, is like, is he a mage? Is she a mage? But a player who's been playing for more time, the storyteller starts saying, this one might be a Nefondus, this one might be a Fey, or this one might be Changeling, you know, and the list goes on. But I, I like that idea of training your awareness skill. An apprentice um, uh, game sessions are a great place to do that. And last off, at the end of the chapter, there's a short section on storyteller advice. And I thought it was short but sweet. It was not longer than it needed to be. I thought it was good quality stuff. They talk about what it's like to come up with some plot ideas for apprentices, how you can work with your apprentice uh, players, and uh, even how you might hand out experience points differently if it's an apprentice chronicle than if it's a regular chronicle. And I agreed with that. I think it made very good sense and uh, stuck with the themes of an apprentice game. So I really love that at the end of the chapter. One of the things that I thought was interesting when it talked about quiet was, to me, it reinterpreted what quiet and marauderdom were in the sense that to me a marauder is when the mage has broken with reality and the avatar has to translate everything where here it kind of presented that a mage is seeing the world normally and their avatar is dragging them towards something possibly to me it kind of reversed that arrow of causality this is one of the tightest storytelling sections that I think I have ever seen in terms of plot ideas, and that was that was great. Yeah, there there are thing there are nuggets in this book that are very thought provoking, and yet they disagree with other published mage book material. And so it's it's interesting to go you know to work that out every, every storyteller to work it out on their own. It's like wow, that's really fascinating, but does it fit? Do mm-hmm. I like it? What am I going to do with this? We had a very short appendix that has a closing bit where Sir Lawrence is like, ah, my pamphlet is ready to go into the world. Sure, as Adam said, there was this frame narrative kind of that's very loosely discussed that this book is an in-world pamphlet kind of. And it's like, okay, I see what you're trying to do. And then we get some very simple, largely one-dot rotes of which to me, the most interesting was Nodos that a character using any one dot sphere effect, the additional information coming in from having an additional set of senses, as it were, or an additional sense can keep you awake. This is probably something that is just going to be used narratively, not mechanically. It's there and it gives you an idea. And then the final one was the rote positive thinking, which is a mind one effect that basically says if a character is completely stumped, they can basically do an extended ritual, build up some effects, and the mage may uncover new insights to help solve a problem in studies or set forth by a mentor. And I wildly swing back and forth on whether or not I like this because you could say like, oh, a character should be able to figure it out. But at the same time, not every storyteller is good. And narratively, I can see a character during their apprenticeship being like, oh, what the heck am I going to do here? And just really bearing down and trying to figure it out and that this is going to be a protracted process and represents the amount of meditation, study and self-reflection that is going to be there. But I also like the idea of just having a gimme effect. It gives a systemized way of a storyteller being like, 
hey, maybe I didn't actually give you enough information to solve that, this this mystery, rather than suddenly a piece of evidence directly dropping into your lap because like, ah, the murderer accidentally dinged your car in a parking lot. Your character can meditate and study and just kind of get a free storyteller hint. I like systems that kind of let you fudge things if you need to, but I really, I really don't know how I feel about it at the end of the day. Uh, we get some advice on running a, an apprentice game, what, how many dots you should have. We get some, what I thought were really neat merits and flaws, of which my favorite was probably blended technique, which is more or less a thing of, if you see a guy do something once, you can kind of repeat it if you have the spheres. And I kind of see why it is a seven point merit. And if you're dropping focuses, the bonus of that kind of drops over time. And then we get three character templates and beyond the characters themselves, easily the most impressive part of this section is somebody in the graphics design portion figured out how to grab the corner, hold shift and just shrink the entire character sheet. So it only takes up a quarter of the page. It is still completely legible. And now you get one character, one page, and it is so, so much tighter. It may sound stupid, but I very much appreciated that. Towards the end of second edition, we get uh, the different starting points for characters. For most of Mage up to this point, uh, there's one way to play Mage, and that is the standard power level. You, you make a character out of the core book, and that's the way you make a Mage character. And here at the end of 2nd edition, we get the low power and the high power options. Uh, this book gives us the low power. You have less skill points. You have less sphere dots. You have an arete of one and no more. You know, two books from now, Masters of the Art, we'll get the high-powered options. You start off more powerful than a standard character. And I, I like that. I, I think it's fun. Um, that's something that's been in fantasy role-playing for a very long time. You can start out as weaker, you can start out as stronger, or or the mid-level. Uh, when it comes to the rotes, I don't like a fiction paragraph or two in my rotes. I, it just it bugs me. It's in the future, when I am quickly um, referencing this and I want to read up on a rote real fast, I, I don't want a fiction section. I, I, I do not like it. But uh, putting that aside, I really did like the rotes here. I thought these were very nice rotes. They were very low level, very appropriate for apprentices. And it was, it was great to see these. I think it's a very useful thing to have in this book. And by the way, I just want to say that this would have been a very good place to put one or more rotes for how more experienced mages find uh, people about to awaken or people who have already awakened. Th this would have been the place for it. It would have been terribly appropriate. The merits and flaws. Yeah, in the past, uh, uh, Terry has mentioned that there are a number of merits and flaws that don't actually appeal to him. And in this case, he found some that did. I like merits and flaws. I like making them a part of the game. I found uh, the re the main reason I like them is because my players in the past were, were nuts about them. They, they just dove into them and they were so glad to have them. So I think that was probably, you know, generally speaking for the people writing the different uh, five World of Darkness games, probably a good idea to have those merits and flaws because they're so popular. Now, these merits and flaws, I liked two of the flaws. The others did not appeal to me. I would not use them myself. I wouldn't get upset if I was playing in a game and, and a storyteller encouraged me to take one. But if I'm running a game, I, I, I would not use these. I, I think it gets into kind of metagaming territory, uh, assumptions made about how easy or difficult rotes are to learn or foci or focuses to pick up. So... Not my thing, but um, your mileage may vary, of mm -hmm. course. 
And the merits and flaws system is there are so many of them that I think everyone is going to dislike 50. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The next book after this is The Spirit Ways. And it's like, there's a big section of merits and flaws. It's like, wow, we got a lot of merits and flaws right at the end of second edition. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I kind of go back and forth. Like every once in a while, I'll see a merit or flaw that is super flavorful and does something really interesting. But like if I had to take all of merits and flaws together as a system, I would probably choose not to. I think in a lot of cases, you can come up with other backgrounds that get you there. I think the biggest thing it does is sometimes it does give me story ideas. Like, for instance, uh, the rogue apprentice flaw that you started training with a particular tradition and went to another. That, to me, is an interesting NPC detail. I will never use it systematically. And now I guess uh, to the criticism of the book of the whole, I've done a lot of talking. Adam, you want to you want to get you want to start on that or the revised era limitations for this book? Uh, we're no longer talking about mages living in chantries in the first edition core book. They mentioned uh, college chantries. They mentioned them again in book of chantries, which had the number three on the spine early in first edition. It was a whole book about chantries, but there were no college chantries, but they sort of mentioned it in passing. It's like, I like this idea of college chantries. I think that's so cool. And initiates that the art would have been the perfect place to put it, but we're in revised era and we're not emphasizing horizon realms and living in chantries. And so that had to be left on the cutting room floor. And so I have to be mature. I have to, to, <laughs> to stop, you know, wipe away that tear and, and move on. But uh, I was kind of sad to, to have that uh, taken out. There was a lot of material here on the nuts and bolts of studying magic, learning magic. And then there's a couple of mentions in the book. It's like, yeah, during your game sessions, you're not going to role play learning the magic because that's boring. But then at the same time, they talk so much about it. And I, at first I thought that was funny, but then I had to, you know, put on and take off the stupid hat and think for a minute. It's like, well, look, I mean, uh, we are going to be talking about, you know, character preludes, a uh, World of Darkness thing where you quickly talk through a character's background so that the storyteller and the player are on the same page and the storyteller can introduce elements that he wants to be working with in Chronicle Ahead. And so, yeah, in those places, um, how magic works and how you learn magic, it, it is appropriate that it is there. And there are going to be a lot of scenes where the apprentice is distracted away from their studies and gets into something interesting. And so it's like, yeah, building the material on what is it like to, for a hermetic to sit in a bricked over room and, and read books for five hours straight. It is appropriate to be there. I like how the apprentice games focus on fundamental concepts. I, I really strongly like the topic of this book. I don't think this is just the low-level option for characters in Mage. I think it's a lot more than that. So I'm so glad they, they published this book and put it in our hands. One of the really great things about Apprentice Games is if you have players that are new to role-playing, if they're new to World of Darkness, even if they're just new to Mage, it is so fun to be able to teach the player and the character at the same time. And this book really gives us the tools to do that, and that's why I'm always going to like this book. I'm very willing to overlook the, the warts that I've picked on because I think that is such a fun thing to do in Mage. There is a very recent game session where the players were trying to piece together what could be antagonizing their character. And one character just said, one player just said, werewolves? Were, are they Are they a thing? And one of the players is like, does my character know anything about werewolves? I'm like, you don't know anything about werewolves, but you're pretty sure that werewolves exist. And he's like, well, shit. So <laughs> so, so we had the in-game moment of people going, werewolves? And, 
And that's something you get to play with, with he's like, does silver do anything with werewolves? And I'm like, Oh man, I've always read the books where it's like, players aren't going to necessarily know this. The characters can't know it either. And it's actually happening. And I was very excited for no reason, which threw things off because I got super excited about them talking about werewolves. So they thought it was a werewolf. Cause I was super excited that they had figured out that it was a werewolf <laughs> when it was not actually a werewolf. So never trust your storytelling. <laughs> never, especially. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 I understand. I understand. I, I like it. It's like a framing device that works so much better than anyone thought it would. But, um, um, also, on, on a similar note, I like the Apprentice Chronicles because you can practice on fundamentals uh, concepts, the fundamental concepts of Mage of the Ascension. Um, it, regardless of what ed- edition it is, it's got arcane background, it's got the awareness skill, it's got Arete, it's got all of these basic building blocks of Mage that I think are often um, briefly explained to a player and then you rush into a game where you deal with factions and you know conspiracies and all this stuff and, and i like an apprentice game because you can slow things down and say okay this is how arate does and does not work this is what it's like for your awareness to trigger and uh, this is how your arcane really is going to work and well does it work this way it's like well, let's play out a game session where you experiment with that oh so arcane doesn't do that i thought it did and so i really like the chance to work with your players and build up the core concepts of mage so that you've got a firm bedrock to rest on when you start your actual stories about fighting evil and saving the day last stop i was so bummed that they did not mention rituals Mm-hmm. Uh, ritual, I mean, is a game term. In second edition, uh, Bracada did a, a great job of helping all of us understand that a ritual is where you are going to do a magical effect. You are going to take a long time to do a magical working, and you are going to let the successes that you roll accumulate over many different rolls. So instead of saying, I put on the sunglasses and I use uh, Spirit One to look down the alleyway, are there any you know funny things down here? Instead, you're going to do a ritual where you take, like, in game time, two or three hours where you get out all your focuses and you get out all of your tools, all of your knowledge. You take a long time to build up successes and then at the end you can get a reasonable result. Now, I like that rituals are in the game not just for role-playing flavor, but because they work really, really well for people who only have an arete of one or two. When they roll the dice, there's a good chance that the effect they're trying to pull off not going to work very well. And so they're going to want to use rituals. They take more time. They're more you know, uptight about how they do their magic. They're more detail-oriented about every step being proper. And then as they get experience points and spend them, they raise their arete. And then they find, oh, I don't know. I don't need rituals as much as I used to. I can just do it in like two minutes by using this one focus. And, and I like that progression in-game of what it's like to be a mage. At first, it takes a long time, and every detail has to be straight. Then it's like, look, as long as I've got this focus and I do this thing, I'm good. And then finally, when you're a master, it's like, oh, I did that effect? I wasn't even thinking about yeah. <laughs> that. But Andy, I, I did want to do that uh, just now. So that, that's very convenient. And I, I just like that effect of what it's like to be a mage and what it's like to role play that. And this book didn't mention how rit- uh, apprentices are going to use rituals all the mm-hmm. time. It's like it wasn't in there. It's like, eh, it would have been nice. I thought overall this was a, a great book. I was delighted with this. The writing was very snappy. 
Like there wasn't a lot of purple prose or overly long sentences. Sure, it gave me some stuff that I probably already knew. But the again, the way I interpreted it, like the two-page spread on the Chorister initiation was, here are the kind of things a character should be able to answer about what their initiation was like. And here is an example of one, as opposed to just giving it a bulleted list of, here are questions you should be able to answer about your initiation if you want to do that as a scene. That, that was my inter- interpretation for a bunch of it. System-wise... I super like Adam's idea of needing to train per your perception or your or your awareness. There wasn't a lot of of real crunchy stuff, but I think the stuff included was pretty neat. Uh, mechanically, though, one of the problems I had was if you have an Arite one, you literally have a ten percent chance of botching, uh, depending on what botch rules you use and what dice pools you use. Uh, starting characters are very likely to botch roughly, in fact, one in 10 times, unless you're spending a lot of willpower to add successes or willpower to delay paradox on setting. So there's actually a pretty good chance that a low-level character will always have one or two dots of paradox and learn how to deal with it. And that systematically was a weird thing. But it also kind of did a thing system-wise where it said, yeah, you should almost always be able to use some form of sensory magic to likely improve your chances of a mundane action. So the edge that an apprentice gets in a lot of cases is, sure, it's only one die, but if you can use that one die to reliably do a life one or forces one or entropy one effect to make your odds of success at a mundane action slightly higher, that is the edge that apprentices are going to have over mortals, and that edge is enough to kind of let them do do really neat things. I like the fact that it talked about in very concise detail why an apprentice may turn nefandus. Like in the Book of Madness, we get like long sections on people being tortured and being broken. But here they really broke it down to say a nefandus is generally quick to offer one of two things, immediate power or immediate understanding. You're like, oh, well, that's good. Um, and they also had, I think, one of the best descriptions of what really makes a nefandus a nefandus when they say a nefandus is a person who finds themselves on the path to darkness to quick understanding who has given themselves to an outer entity realized what they are doing and then keeps going and mm. i thought that was a really neat framing on what makes a nefandus different than uh maybe a petty infernalist or someone who has just sacrificed themselves to get power to get vengeance or something like that page 47 has a little bit of a reminder that says remember that like one dot effects are miraculous and that is something that in my games or will appear miraculous to the person using it, especially for the first time that suddenly you have this extra sense. And something I have tried to do in my games is when characters use a one dot sensory effect, really lean into the fact that they are accessing something that is not within normal human perception. Unless, of course, you're using something like an IR camera as your forces focus or something like that. But you are literally seeing a world in a way that almost no one else ever gets to. And I, I liked that. On balance, the nuggets were way better than the parts that I thought were a little slow or chunky or inconsistent. But this is a book that makes me excited for Revised. I think it's well written. I think there's a lot of stuff in here. I think it could have used certainly an editing pass to make everything internally line up. But otherwise, I really have no complaints. And I think I got this for six or seven bucks. If you're going to do an Apprentice Chronicle, I give a hearty recommendation for that. Please use our affiliate code. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can recommend it too. Um, I've noticed that one of the interesting things about being a storyteller for mage games 
is describing to the players what happens when they use a level two, three, or four sphere effect is usually not so difficult. But when they use a level one sphere effect mm-hmm. and they sense something that normal humans cannot sense, and the storyteller's like, okay, tell me about it. And the storyteller has to tell the player about it. And the storyteller's like, how do I describe that? <laughs> I, I, I like how it pushes me to be creative about seeing things that cannot be seen and you can't even see it. You're just sensing it in a way that is... Yeah not eyes or ears or nose. And it's like, how do I describe this? Well, the player's looking at you and it's time to get... How do I describe something out of that hat? It's time. Yeah. I I think Entropy 1 is probably one of the harder ones for me, like suddenly being able to see the threads of fate. And that's one of those things where I am also perfectly comfortable being lazy as a storyteller and saying, this is the result. This is the important plot information you get. How do you think your character sees that? And using that as an opportunity to be like, how does their paradigm inflect literally the way they see the world? It took some time to talk about Seekings, which, um, you know, is an interesting topic. Uh, you could say that awakening is like a seeking to go from Erite zero to Erite one, but most people kind of differentiate it, which which I understand. But um, seekings going up to Erite two, three, etc. is something that's going to be a part of probably an apprentice game, and so they they mention seekings here. And I was just I just took some time to think about that because. It's um, one of the concepts of mage where a person is sort of transcending the world to achieve some sort of metaphysical accomplishments, in a sense, becoming a higher person. A seeking can be seen two ways, really. Uh, one is confronting your own shortcomings and resolving them. In this sense, the mage isn't actually learning something about magic or about the world. They are working out their own problems so that they can become a better person. And the you know the old world thinking is when you perfect yourself, when you become a better person, person, you are more capable of learning about the universe you're in. And so this, on the surface at least, it it suggests kind of running against Brocato's idea as a developer was that the more powerful a mage gets, the farther away from ascension they get. It's like, well, if you're perfecting yourself, aren't you getting closer to ascension? But I realize that's not the only way to interpret this. Another way that mage fans interpret seekings is the mage is getting stronger. Not like your muscles physically stronger, but as a whole, the mage is getting stronger. And so the stronger they get, the more magic they can learn. And the stronger they get, the more prideful they get. And that pulls them farther and farther away from ascension. So, yeah, seekings don't necessarily negate this this concept that that Brocata had as a developer. There's two different ways you can interpret those. And either way is perfectly fine for your chronicles, but uh, a fun thing to consider. Consider. What are your adventure yeah. ideas, Adam? I'm pretty curious to hear what they are. Well, I've got three this time for apprentices. One, uh, one of the players has a wild talent that allows her to create pale blue flames that are a very rare forces life effect that burns with an intense cold and leeches vitality from an area. The players are taken to a chantry for safety where the player with the wild talent is quickly put in a tower at the edge of the chantry for everyone's safety. The other players are allowed to take food and study materials to the sequestered player. The helpers overhear the wild talent may attract the attention of a feared umbrood named Gorana, Lady of the Cold Flame. Can the players find the right materials to help their friend master her wild talent before the umbrood or chantry leader takes final action? What does Gorana really want? And why is the visiting Euthanatos guest so insistent about taking care of the problem quickly? An opportunity to use the destiny background. Number two, the players' apprentices are being trained by multiple mages. One gives them the task of gathering arcane materials in the town near the chantry and leaving subtle designs scratched in the ground to communicate with the sister chantry. Another mage of the chantry catches the players in town and escorts them quickly home. Players are accused of gathering items for fallen rituals and leaving messages for enemies. The teacher who 
gave the assignment denies everything. If the players ask other mages to use magic to prove their innocence, it doesn't work or gives false connotations. One of the mentors believes the players and helps them cheat on their confinement to find clues. What is the crooked instructor planning? If they can find his allies or evidence in his sanctum, they may be able to turn this around. Number three, the players are apprentices in a city on Earth. In the neighborhood, they meet a mysterious person that triggers their mystic senses. If approached, the person always leads the players on a chase through alleys, uh, restaurant kitchens, nightclubs. The mystic taunts them each time before disappearing. The stranger could be a kitsune, which is a, a werefox, or a nuisha, which is a, a were-coyote, who tests the apprentice characters to see if they're worthy. If aggressive, the players will be led to hostile sleeper gangs. If persistent but non-aggressive, the players will be led to evidence of Bane spirit activity in an apartment building, something preferably non-deadly that the players can clean up. This story is an opportunity to make allies, learn about were-creatures, and develop their awareness talent. It should be easy to weave this into another story. And that's what I've got today. My quote of the episode, I'm going to cheat and include two because they're short. One was, there are a lot of dumb little ways to die. Trying to work a spell while driving can be a sure way of getting into a wreck. You also have a chance of taking sleepers with you. And then this this is not me. This is in the text, the line, now that's what I call ascension. Um, which <laughs> <laughs> There's also a longer one on the nature of practice that I absolutely loved, which was just kind of a discussion of the kind of dedication a mage needs to have to do things. And they give the example of ringing a gong every three hours, 17 minutes and 43 seconds precisely as, as a focus thing. That's on page 47. Go read that yourself. It's too long for me to quote. And then the final one was rarely does a mage find himself in the midst of flying debris without some cause. I think that summarizes the mage experience quite nicely. That does, actually. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, well, if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Don't worry, we can take it. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn. And there are several other uh, places now where you can uh, subscribe to our podcast. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a positive review of us, then other people are going to be able to find us in their searches much more easily. You can also follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web, magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and see the complete show notes that we put together uh, with a lot of helpful links. This episode is thanks to executive producers Ira Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, John Magnuson, Chris Zack, Christopher Phillips, Bryce Perry, Brendan Morrill, Andrew Katz, Michael Parker, Anders, and Justin. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes. You would also become part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Next up, we have Spirit Ways. Is that our next one? That, that is correct. Nice. And with that, go change the world.